thing got torn out of a calendar that's up here on the up here on the pulpit on March the second, Texas Independence Day. From a you might be a redneck if calendar. You might be a redneck if you've ever committed a drive by mooning with a with a preacher, not at a preacher, but with a preacher. I've known him longer than any of y'all have. Yeah. You don't even know the half of it. Probably. Okay. We got a lot to cover tonight. I've got to cram three hours into into an hour and ten minutes or something. So we'll start off. Let's go to the let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful we can be here this evening. We're thankful we can come together to uh, fellowship around your word and to fellowship afterwards, and that the fellowship that we have is because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, and that he uh, died there as a substitute for our sins, that by faith in him alone we can have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that as we study this evening, as we get into your word, that we can handle it accurately, and that as a result of a study of your word, that we're in is strengthened and that we come to a better understanding of what you have revealed to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, in the last uh, last couple of nights, what I focused on is understanding about time. Time is really the big issue when you when it comes to origins. A theory of origins has has it taken billions of years in order to get where we are today? Has it only taken a few thousand years? Up until the uh, about the last 200 years or so, with the advent of of uh, modern science and various uh, methodologies for assessing the age of the Earth, the age of man, verse, uh, most people in Western Europe, in, those influenced by Christianity and the Bible, uh, have held to a relatively short uh, time span for the existence of the solar planet Earth, something on the order of between six and 10,000 years. But with the advent of modern science, those dates increased from 40,000, 100,000, 500,000, several million, universe being uh, then uh, two or three billion years, billion years old. And so uh, the first night I focused on how do we really evaluate evidence? How do we know when we have competing, competing, uh, competing systems of truth? Who ultimately determines what's reason? Independent, autonomous reason. Is it experience, independent, um, autonomous experience, or is it a combination of the two? Is it intuition? Or when it comes to certain eternal, uh, overarching truths, do, do we? have to go to outside information from a creator who stands outside of the universe, outside of creation, who gives us that information we need in order to understand uh, what we have. Not that it means that we reject reason or reject experience, but that it has a limited a- applicability. Now, unfortunately, what happens in when we come to the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, We've had about 200 years of the influence 
of uh, evolutionary theory, the about 200 years or a little more of the influence of historical ge- geological theories, all of which assert uh, several hundred thousand or million years for the age of the Earth and billions of years for the age of the, of the universe. And as a result of that, there were several theories that were developed in the 19th century and into the 20th century in order to try to uh, take the findings of modern science and merge them with the scripture. And this was all done on the assumption that the conclusions of modern science related to the age of the earth and the age of the universe were indeed accurate. And then that was used as the interpretive principle for understanding the first part of Genesis. But what I would contend is once you do that, you undercut the authority, the historicity, the literal truth of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's not just Genesis 1. It has to do with Genesis 6 through 9 and the ending the worldwide Noahic flood. The two are, are definitely connected to one another. And so these theories that came up, the two most popular that most of us have been influenced by, one was called the Gap View, and that was first developed by a man by the name of Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish Presbyterian theologian, uh, starting in about 1804 to 1814. I've read different dates, but he began to teach that you could put all of the geological ages and millions of years between uh, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And this would account for all of the fossils. It would account for dinosaurs. It would account for uh, various uh, uh, human, uh, human-like human fossils, uh, such as uh, uh, Neanderthal man, Australopithecine, uh, Peking man, others of that nature. And that, that it, <coughs> all of this happened long before God created Adam. But that would necessitate that you have death, suffering, and disease. For example, Neanderthal man had rickets and uh, he had a vitamin deficiency. He had uh, arthritis and that would indicate that disease and death existed. Now, in- indications are now that Neanderthal man was uh, diseases, problems, deficiencies, whatever. So this would necessarily indicate that you had disease and death before Adam, and thus the 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 uh, statement of God, the prohibition of God in Genesis two seventeen, that if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would die. Death comes by Adam. This is what Paul says when you, especially when you get into First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Now some people have said, well, that just is spiritual death. But in First Corinthians fifteen. What's the focal point of his of his uh, of Paul's message there? What is Paul explaining in First Corinthians fifteen? What is he defending in First Corinthians fifteen? Anybody, off the top of your head, physical bodily resurrection. So the death that he's talking about there has to be understood in terms of the context of physical bodily resurrection. Uh, so that means it's got to be physical death, not spiritual death. And if death comes by Adam, and in Adam all die then that uh, has uh, implications not just for mankind, but beyond mankind. So we have to be willing to question whatever uh, pet theories we might have on, on the old earth just because it gives us a measure of comfort when we hear uh, all of these pronouncements by modern scientists 
and uh, evolutionists and geologists, whether it's at the Grand Canyon or whether it's on uh, Discovery Channel or something like that. So we have to be willing to question what the Scripture says. Now, a lot of these theories that came out came from people who were influenced by various uh, liberal theories of revelation, theories of insp- liberal theories of inspiration of Scripture, and uh, Miller Burrs, who himself was somewhat uh, liberal and was a professor at uh, at uh, Yale and one of the original uh, men who worked with the Dead Sea Scrolls, said that the excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. So he recognizes that they're already they, they approach the evidence with a bias, with an assumption that that the supernatural can't be, that it could not happen the way the Bible says. And so when they look at the evidence, they see it differently from the way uh, someone would look at the evidence if they had uh, more of an open mind or if they believed that God had created things. And so it, within the evolutionary theory, time is really the an extremely important issue if it's not one of the most important issues. George Wald, in his book, The Origin of Life, uh, in, his, or in an article called The Origin of Life in the book, The Physics and Chemistry of Life, stated, Time is, in fact, the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, and the possible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs miracles. And so what my contention is, is once we begin to to compromise on this principle of time, and go with an old earth gap view or a day-age theory or progressive uh, creationism or threshold evolution or uh, any of the other modern theories, what we've done is we have really compromised at a foundational fundamental level. And once you begin to do that, it doesn't mean that with everybody that it leads to heresy, but it does open the door. I pointed out in terms of time, the principle governing historical geology was laid down by Charles Lyell in his book Principles of Geology, a principle called uniformitarianism, that all natural processes continue at the same rate. So if you can measure rate today, then you can extrapolate back and determine how old things are, whether it's laying down sediment or whether it is uh, radioactive decay, different things like that. And I pointed out in terms of uh, the various uh, systems of radiometric dating, that there are tremendous amounts of inconsistencies uh, that that exist, and you, you, we just can't uh, depend upon those things. So I thought that before we really go any further tonight, I wanted to use put one more slide up here just to show the implications. When you apply un- the uniformitarian principle to a number of other processes that we see going on around us today. And so on the left, we'll see the process, and then we'll see what age the, of the Earth it, it indicates. So if we measure the influx of sulfates into the ocean today, that yields an age of the, of the uh, Earth or of the oceans of 10 million years. If you measure the decay of natural plutonium, that indicates an age of 80 million years. 
That's a 70 million year difference. That's, that's a lot. Now, in an age when we're running three and four trillion dollar deficits and nobody really understands big numbers, that, that, that's just, uh, uh, we, we just get lost in the high weeds there with those big numbers, but that's, that's a tremendous amount. That's seven times or eight times greater than the age of, uh, of the influx of sulfates. Then if we measure the decay of the Earth's magnetic field. Now, this is really interesting. A man by the name of Thomas Barnes, who was, the, who was a creationist, who was the head of the physics department at the University of Texas, El Paso, back in the 70s. I heard him speak and give a paper on this back when I was, uh, uh, was in, uh, in seminary. And he, he uh, pointed out that starting in the middle 19th century, they began to measure the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere. And that every year since then, they have measured it. And so you can extrapolate backward uh, based on the, the uh, uh, degree. Uh, each year, it gets a little bit less. And so they can measure backwards how strong it was going back uh, 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 5,000 years or 10,000 years or, or whatever. And if you go back uh, 10,000 years... Then, then, and beyond 10,000 years, the magnetic sphere would be too powerful to support life. You go back 15,000 to 20,000 years, the magnetic, uh, the, the strength of the magnetic sphere would, would it cause the Earth to implode. And so the decay of the Earth's magnetic field would indicate an age of about 10,000 years. If you look at the influx of radiocarbon to the Earth, again, it yields an age of around 10,000 years. If you look at the influx of magma coming up from the mantle to form the crust of the earth, that would indicate an age of 500 million years. Tremendous discrepancy. If you look at the formation of river deltas, the amount of silt that's laid down in river deltas, uh, now you're down to an age of 5,000 years. Uh, if you look at the uh, development of total human population, you can extrapolate the growth of uh, humanity. You're down to an age of 4,000 years. If you look at the influx of aluminum to the ocean uh, via the rivers, you have an age of 100 years. And if you measure the influx of, of lead to the ocean uh, via the rivers, you have an age of 2,000 years. Now, John Morris, who's now the president and director of the Institute for Creation Research, had a chart in an earlier edition of, uh, of one of his books, at least I think it was, called The Young Earth, where he had about four pages of examples of this, measuring all kinds of different chemicals and uh, different uh, different types of time clocks, in order to measure the age of the Earth, and they they provide radically different numbers. So, which one are you going to choose? Well, you choose the one, of course, that fits your theory the best. What we have to remember is that Scripture teaches us that God created everything. And if we're going to accept the fact that, that he, he has revealed that he created everything, my question is, why don't we accept the fact that he tells us how he created everything? And uh, just a couple of verses that you could uh, jot down and think about. Uh, Psalm 102:25 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Now that word foundation is an important word to we'll come back to a little later on, because that indicates the starting point of something. Uh, was the roof put on this building before or after the foundation? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Okay. Uh, the walls, did the walls go up before or after the foundation? 
know, foundation's the first thing that happens. It's it's the starting point. So uh, we'll remember that when we come back a little later on. Isaiah thirty-seven sixteen, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Then Isaiah forty-eight twenty-eight, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, uh, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, nor understanding is unsearchable. And then Isaiah forty-five twelve, God said, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hand, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. So the doctrine of creation goes throughout the scripture, and its starting point is Genesis 1. Now, Genesis is the foundation of the rest of the Bible. Every major doctrine that you find in the New Testament is based on something that happens in Genesis 1 to 11. If Genesis 1 to 11 is taken out of the Bible, if we were to start with Genesis 12, we would have no idea how things were created at all, no mention of creation. We wouldn't know why God was calling Abraham. We wouldn't know uh, what had happened up to that point at all. We wouldn't understand why man is a sinner. We wouldn't understand anything about the need for redemption. We wouldn't understand anything about marriage and family. We wouldn't understand anything about human government, the death penalty. We wouldn't understand any of the divine institutions. Uh, so Genesis 1 through 11 is foundational to almost every doctrine uh, following uh, Genesis Genesis chapter uh, ch- chapter 11. So w- the the strategy is that once you destroy the historicity, the validity of those 11 chapters and that as not being literally true, then everything that's built on top of that crumbles. Now. There are, of course, people who try to hold on to that, but it's like uh, it, 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 it's they want to believe the rest of it, sort of, but they don't really want to believe that foundation, so they're illogical or inconsistent. So we're going to look tonight at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, specifically the first three verses. A couple of other things we'll point out as we go along, but uh, primarily I want to look at Genesis 1, and then if I have time or whether I have time or not, I want to look at a couple of things related to uh, the flood. So we'll begin. I've got the text up there. and You can look at it. Open your Bible. And we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now this appears grammatically to be a standalone sentence in the original. Then the next verse begins, The earth, I'm reading from the New King James Version, it begins, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, so the evening and morning were the first day. Now, a couple of things we ought to note there, just so we don't lose this, is that that the light is... Notice the word day is used a couple of different ways in verse 5. He called the light day. That would be between sunrise and sunset. That's a the narrowest definition of the word day. And that refers to the daytime period as opposed to the nighttime period. But we understand that just from reading the context. The evening and morning, 
Then uh, you have sunset going towards the next uh, morning, the next dawn. That's called the first day. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated day is the, is the word yom. And this word indicates a number of different things, as the English word does. I, was, I pointed out the other night, uh, it can mean a long period of time. For example, the day of the Lord is a long period of time. Uh, it's not necessarily a 24-hour period. You also have the use of the word day right here in verse 5, where it indicates something less than a 24-hour day. It's referring to the daytime period. But God defines the context here in terms of that day relates to a complete rotation of the earth on its axis. On its axis. Notice how I define that. Now that hasn't been focused on in some definitions, especially from our critics who want to make the day much longer. They'll say, well, look, you, you, you don't have the sun till the fourth day, so how can you have light here? Well, God creates light, but it's not focused in a light-bearing entity yet. The sun does not exist yet. It's very clear from the language that, that the sun doesn't exist at this point. The sun doesn't exist until we get down to uh, the fourth day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. But see, there's already a, a an unembodied light that's separated from darkness earlier, and it's enough to dis- differentiate between a, a daytime period and a nighttime period. And what distinguishes it is that the earth is rotating on its axis. So that period of time that's called the first day is one complete rotation on the axis. Not, it doesn't have anything to do with its relationship to the sun. It has to do with its rotation on the axis in relationship to uh, the, the uh, light itself. If we go on to read it down in verse uh, 16, God made, that's the Hebrew word I saw, it indicates that God, this is when God, it doesn't say God turned the lights on or restarted these lights as if they had been on at one time and they're functioning again. He made them at this point. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then it says, and the stars also. As sort of an afterthought. And the indication here is that this is when they are created, not when they are recreated or the lights turned back on, as if at an earlier stage they were on. So what we ought to do, we have to honestly understand what the text says before we start in applying it. So we really have to pay attention to a number of these different, uh, different features within the first chapter of Genesis. So let's just go back now to the beginning point. We read that in the beginning God created the heavens uh, and the earth. And I read from the King James, New King James, and, and it didn't have this but there that I put up there. But that's actually there in the, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew. It says, but the earth was without form and void. Now in Hebrew, you have, Hebrew has a very simple sort of grammar. If you're, if you're talking about things that are consecutive, 
Okay, if you're talking about a narrative, for example, you can say that you got up in the morning and you went in and you brushed your hair and then you went in and turned hot and then you drank a cup of coffee and then you read the paper and then you got dressed and went to work. See, you're telling a narrative of a series of actions and one thing follows another. You did this and then you did that and then you did another. It's consecutive. So that's called uh, a vav consecutive. Vav is the Hebrew conjunction that's there. But if you're going to break the flow of action so that you talk about something else or you want to make a contrast, then you use a structure in the Hebrew called a vav disjunctive. And in, and in Hebrew, the way that's set up normally is you have a vav plus a verb plus noun. Okay, and that's your, every time you see that, that's how every Hebrew sentence starts. You have a, a vav plus the verb, then the noun. But sometimes you see the vav plus a noun plus a verb. That indicates this disjunction. That's what you have in verse 2. It's it, it, Instead of following the normal pattern, which would be something like, uh, but was without form and void the earth, it has the earth right after the conjunction. The noun is right after the conjunction, indicating that there is some sort of a break in the action. He's talking about something different from what's happened in the first in the first verse. So the first verse indicates an initial creation, uses a Hebrew uh, verb, bara, God created the heavens and the earth. And there are some people who've, who've mishandled that, that particular verb. Some have said that, that this word indicates uh, uh, creation from nothing, creation ex nihilo. That's the Latin phrase meaning from nothing. But that's not a part of the inherent meaning in bara. Another thing you'll hear sometimes, and I probably misstated this, uh, at times, sometimes people will do that when they're talking. Is that bara is only used? Uh, uh, God's the only one who can bara. Well, Hebrew has different uh, different. Um, uh, you have the different stems of a verb. You have a cal stem and a nifal stem and a pl and puah In the cal, only God is the subject of this verb. Only God can bara when it's in the in the in the cal stem. So that's what you have here, indicating this is a unique divine creation and that uh, only God can do that. So this does indicate the beginning of the universe. The phrase, the heavens and the earth, indicates a totality of something. Now, in Hebrew, there's no word universe. That's a, uh, it comes out of the Latin. That's more of a, uh, that's a lang- uh, from a different language. But in Hebrew, when they want to talk about the totality of something, they will use the two opposites. So they'll talk about night and day. That covers everything. So if you want to talk about the universe, you'd say the heavens and the earth. So that would indicate the universe. So at this point, you have at the time of the beginning, this would be the beginning of time, and I believe that that time and space have to go together, that God created the heavens and the earth. He creates the universe, and that's what starts the space-time continuum. God is outside of time. Time doesn't apply to God. So God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the break in the action, something happens between 1-1 and 1-2. Now, that's challenged by a lot of people. Some people say, well, all that happens here is that uh, uh, Genesis 1-1 is a topical sentence. It's just sort of a summary of the first chapter. And verse 2 starts off telling us uh, what things look like. It's, it would be like, uh, like having a, a, a wedding album, a, a, a photo book. 
and at the front it says the 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 Smith wedding. That's your that's like Genesis one one. Just tells you what you're going to look at, and then you open it up, and the first thing you see is a picture of them getting married. Well, you don't know anything about how they met or how they. Uh, began to date or how they came to any kind of decision to get married. Uh, the first thing you see is them getting married. You don't know anything about what happened before. Now, there are some people who take Genesis 1-2 like that. It, it just starts off and you already have this condition, but you don't know anything about what preceded it because they take 1-1 as a summary sentence. And usually people who do that compare 1-1 with 2-4. With now, uh, let me read 2-4 to you, and you just sort of compare that with 1-1. The, the the last verse in the creation narrative is is uh, is verse verse four. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that in the day. Notice that there's another use of that word day, but in a uh, general sense or at the time that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth, and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man and there's a break somewhere there in verse 5 so that's that's the summary there in verse 5 doesn't fit the same pattern that you have back in in verse uh, verse 1 it's similar but it is it, it is distinct so 1 1 is more than a topical sentence it is the only place really in the scripture that talks about an initial creation. Now something happens there though with Genesis 1-2. Now here's another <coughs> critique you'll have from people. There's no gap here. As they'll say the, 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 the disjunctive vav there tells you something that is happening at the same time as the, uh, as the previous verse. So that uh, it's describing the condition of what God created in verse 1. So verse 2 then would be describing something that happens at the same time as verse verse 1. They would say that when God created everything, it was just kind of a it was just kind of a uh, the raw elements of everything. And so it wasn't uh, organized yet. It was just uh, God creating the the basic elements and then the rest of the chapter describes God bringing order out of chaos. The trouble with that is that it doesn't fit all the patterns of this particular type of construction. For example, at the end of chapter 2, remember there are no chapter divisions in the original. Chapter 2, verse 5, going down to chapter uh, 2.25, takes place when in relationship to chapter 1? It takes place before the end of of uh, 2.4, it takes place on the sixth day. It describes in more detail what happens during the sixth day with the creation of, of the man and the woman. And so the e- events of chapter down through 2.25 all take place within the period, the time period of 1.1 to 2.4. And then 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. Now, is that happening during the time of 1-1 through 2-4? Or is that something that the, the serpent comes along after 2-4? After 2-4. So it's very clear that the, that the, uh, this, this same grammatical construction dis- is describing something that brings in a, something that is out of harmony with what went on before. Okay, 
Now, now that, that can be a light contrast or a strong contrast, but it's something that's not in harmony. There's, you know, if, if you were watching an opera, the bass would start playing and the bad guy would be coming on the stage. Okay? Uh, as soon as you read that, now the serpent was on the field, you can just hear the bass uh, begin to rumble. And so what we, uh, what we see is that uh, when you have this kind of construction that you have in 1-2, is the information that's given in 1-2 is in contrast with the state of 1-1. One, one. Now, that, that can't be our only evidence, because grammar can be made to go in some different directions. It's not as rigid as some people would, would want it to be. Sometimes it is, but uh, not always. So we have to look at this in a in a little more detail. Well, the first thing we should notice is that when God created everything, He created it perfect because God is perfect. So God does not complete necessarily uh, create something that is a just a just a uh, chaotic mess. And we can back this up with various scriptures, such as Deuteronomy thirty-two four, the rock, His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. God is restated to be perfect, Matthew 5.48. We're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So God is perfect. What he creates is perfect. And when he created the heavens and the earth initially, it was perfect. So he did not... (coughs) uh, He did not create it a chaos. That is our claim. He did not create it a chaos. We can substantiate that by three different things that are said about the state that occurs in chap- in, in uh, verse 2. In 1-2, the first thing we read is that the earth was without form and void. Now, we could translate that, but the earth was, uh, was, without, was uh, chaotic or became chaotic and, and empty. And that word that's translated was can... Can there are a lot of people today who just want to say no? It can't mean that. You have Hebrew scholars that say that, but there are examples in Scripture where that verb hayah is translated and can only be understood as became. Now here it could be either way. So I try not to emphasize that as much because you can't make the case just completely uh, rest on how you understand the verb. But the phrase together tohu vabohu is a phrase that is combination of two words and often when we take uh, certain uh, certain things together and we combine two words in a phrase uh, it means something different from either the two words individually so we have this uh, phrase and it indicates a desert a wasteland a place of confusion chaos emptiness it's it's a place that is barren it is usually a negative concept especially when we find it later on uh, in the prophets. So we read in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and this fits a couple of verses. You have the same phrase used in verses such as uh, Jeremiah 4-23, I beheld the earth, or the land, this is a reference to the land of Israel, and indeed it was without form and void. This is Jeremiah looking at uh, the land of Judah after it would be uh, devastated by the Babylonian invasion. So that what we see here is this phrase tohu vabohu is describing a state uh, that re- that is a result of judgment upon the uh, upon the land. 
Another verse that's used is Isaiah 45:18. For thus says the Lord who created, and then we have that word bara again, who created the heavens, who is God who formed the earth. That's another uh, word that's used, uh, yatser, indicating uh, shaping something, formed the earth and made it. Asad, a third creation word. Who has established it, who did not create it in vain. There's that word tohu. He did not create it tohu. So tohu is not the original state of the earth, but it is something that came afterward. And tohu vabohu is a word, uh, a phrase that is used only about uh, five or six times in the Old Testament. But it indicates, when it is used, it indicates something that is the result of a judgment. Another place that that phrase is used is in Isaiah 34.11, describing a, a, a judgment over uh, Babylon. Uh, but pelican and hedgehog shall possess it, and owl and raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch over it the line of desolation, tohu, and the plumb line of emptiness, bohu. So here we have those two words used again in a context to describe the results of divine judgment upon, uh, upon the land. So my first point is that you have three different key terms used to describe the earth. Now, if you just had one of them, then maybe we wouldn't have much of a case. But you have three together, three different terms that frequently are used to describe the, uh, the results of judgment, something negative, something evil has happened. The second uh, thing that we see is, is the use of the phrase darkness and, uh, and deep. These two words are also used with negative connotations. We read that the earth was, first of all, tohu vabohu. It became without form and void. Darkness is on the face of the deep. Those two concepts together uh, are the other two words that are there that also resonate with something very negative. Uh, indication of judgment coming on the earth. The first word, uh, darkness, is vahoshik in the Greek. And you have it in faces like uh, the darkness that came over the land of Egypt during the, uh, during the plagues, uh, this deep darkness that came uh, as a result of judgment. Uh, Exodus 10, 21 and 22, Moses stretches out his hand, and there's darkness in the land of Egypt for, uh, for three days. Uh, another place that it's mentioned in a negative sense is uh, Psalm 35, 6, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Uh, Joel 2.2, talking about the day of the Lord, it's a day of darkness and gloom, uh, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, When you get into the New Testament, darkness is used to describe spiritual rebellion, people who reject God's truth. The people were sitting in darkness, and they saw great light. Uh, John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than the light. Uh, Revelation. When we come to the end of time, it's very interesting. When we come to the end of time, um, there's there's no darkness. I think there is a parallel between the very beginning creation of Genesis one one that there was no darkness and there was no deep. The deep that we'll see in a minute to home indicates the turbulent, uncontrollable salt sea. Okay, you get out on the ocean, you're in a sailboat, storm comes up, very scary. 
Okay, you can't control it. You don't know what's going to happen, where you're going to end up. Uh, you could easily be, be shipwrecked. So darkness and the deep come in Genesis 1-2 as a result of judgment. When you get to the new heavens and the new earth, there's no salt sea anymore, and there's no darkness. Uh, Genesis, uh, Revelation, I saw no temple yet for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. And the land, I believe that the end parallels the beginning. So when God initially created the heavens and the earth, He's already created the angels. We see that because of uh, Job uh, 37, 4 through 8. The, uh, the sons of God, all the sons of God, shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So the angels are created, God creates the earth, but in that original universe before uh, the, the satanic fall, was there a sun? I don't think so. Just like there's not going to be a sun or a moon in the future new heavens and new earth. Were there stars? Remember, the stars are said to be made in Genesis on the fourth day. I don't think there were any stars. I think you had... The space-time continuum, like a big black box. I remember when I was in uh, when I was in junior high. Remember, we always had to come up with these ideas. What are we going to do for a science project? I am a liberal arts guy. I am not a science guy. And my parents bought a new refrigerator. It came in a big box, and I got the idea. Well, we're going to paint the inside of the box black, and we're going to put a styrofoam ball up in one corner. That's the sun, and then we're going to hang the planets uh, in order and uh, paint stars inside. So we started off, what was the first thing we did? We had the empty box, and that's the space-time continuum of the universe. It's finite. Painted the inside black, it's all dark, and then uh, you, you hang the earth in there. That's all you had. God provided the light. You didn't have, there's nothing in the text to indicate that you had stars or sun or moon in Genesis 1-1. You just had this planet which was, I believe, the head, as we'll, I'll show in a little bit, which was the headquarters of the angels. And this is where Lucifer was. This is where God had his throne. And this is where the original uh, angelic sin took place. But there's no stars, there's no sun, there's no moon. There's just this planet in a empty space-time continuum. Now that third <coughs> third word, that's key in Genesis 1-2 is to home for the deep, indicating the salt sea. And it, it doesn't always indicate something negative, but many times it does. Exodus 15-5, the deeps cover them. They went down to the depths like a stone. That's at the um, when the uh, Red Sea uh, swallowed them up. Uh, this is uh, the song uh, of uh, Miriam there. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Ezekiel 27:19, uh, it's used again. God will bring up the deep over you, and the great waters will cover you, indicating judgment again. You know, it's used with uh, the the uh, uh, Red Sea judgment on the Egyptians, used here in terms of judgment. Revelation 21:1. Now I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There was no more sea. Now there's water, there's fresh water, but no more sea, no more salt sea. That's a negative. Showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Okay, so you have these three terms that are used that are used in and uh, many many times in Scripture. 
of judgment, indicating judgment, something negative that's happened. When you take a, it, if you just had one of them, it wouldn't necessarily mean that. But you've got three terms, and it's that combination of those three terms indicates that Genesis 1-2 tells us of a description of the planet that is not what it initially was, that something has happened that's, that's negative. So this tells us that there is some sort of gap, I believe, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There's a time distance there. Now, that has traditionally been called the gap view. But what happened when Thomas Chalmers came along is he jammed billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Now, the view that there was a gap there had existed for at least 2,000 or 1,800 years. Going back to the, at the earliest known example of this, the idea that there were, was some sort of uh, earlier creation, earlier existence of the planet, can be found in statements in the Targum of Onkelos, which was a Jewish commentary on Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Also, uh, a couple of other writings that were made at that time. One was uh, made by a disciple of, uh, of Rabbi Akiba. Rabbi Akiba was the uh, rabbi who identified uh, uh, Bar Kokhba as the uh, son of the stars. It was a false messiah. Uh, it was a uh, rebellion against Rome that occurred in 135 uh, A.D. Uh, Rabbi Akiva was executed, but one of his disciples wrote some things, and he also indicated that there was an earlier uh, existence or creation of of the planet. So you clearly have evidence that uh, there were those. There's an interpretation of Genesis one one and one two made by people who understood Hebrew. It was a native language going back to at least the early part of the second century, and probably preceded that that indicated that there was some sort of a time gap between 1-1 and 1-2. But it's not long. It's not like billions and billions of years. Now, later on in the Middle Ages, you had a number of Christian uh, writers and theologians who saw that that was, a, that was the best place to put the fall of Satan. But it doesn't require billions of years. It doesn't require even hundreds of years. It may only require a few few decades in terms of our modern time frame. Uh, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, which some of you may have read in high school or college literature class, had this same view. So this was a view that many, many people held up to the, the early 1800s. It already existed. But nobody was defining the time period between 1-1 and 1-2 until Thomas, Thomas Chalmers co-opted it and said, ah, we'll just stretch it out and we'll cram all this stuff in there and then we can be happy uh, with science. But its basic problem is he's assuming that the ages that science is coming up with are legitimate. And he's violated the first rule of hermeneutics. He's interpreting the Bible on the basis of experience instead of letting the Bible speak for itself. And there were uh, others down through the uh, 19th century who came up with, with different, uh, different conclusions. Now, there's a lot of folks who, who don't agree with that. They'll say, you know, they, they want to take it as a strict uh, <coughs> chronology. Genesis 1-1 starts the first day. And that's a view that you'll find often with uh, answers in Genesis uh, Institute for Creation Research and these folks and they want to take it as a strict day because what they're reacting to is that the old, what I call the old earth gap view is really an assimilation an accommodation to the conclusions of modern science. They've compromised 
at the very core. They might as well throw out the rest of Scripture if you're going to do that. And uh, and so they, they're, they're not always real objective on this, and they don't understand that there are people like me who hold to a young earth gap view that the period of time required for Satan to fall isn't very long, but you can't put Satan's fall anywhere after that. It really just doesn't uh, doesn't seem to work. What they'll come back with to, to to me with is that well, when you come to the end of Genesis uh, chapter one, come down to the end of the um, of uh, Gen- Genesis um, uh, where you look at. Uh, let me see here. Um, When God saw everything, verse 31, 131. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And at the end of each day, he said he saw everything that was good. Now, at the end, he says it was very good. Now, they say, see, that means that it's perfect. You can't have, Satan can't have fallen by, by this point, because everything is very good. What have they done? They have taken the word good, and they have assumed that it has a moral connotation. Can good have a moral connotation? Sure it can but is it part of its core semantic value? How's that for a fancy term? It's not. It, you ha- context has to indicate that. Now, if good means mor- morally good, then you've got a real problem. If you just turn the page, now th- remember, this would be, t- be taking place on the, on the, sixth, on the sixth day. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, God is... Uh, is dealing with Adam, and he um, he looks at Adam and he says in verse eighteen, "It's not good that man should be alone." Yeah, now we got a problem, because even though he solves Adam's problem by bringing him a woman, if if it's true that it's not good, if it's not morally good for man to be alone, then any man that's single is living in sin. So we've got a problem if what? That's a good line, isn't it? Yeah. So uh good has moral connotation. Um it can in some places. Uh Genesis two nine talks about some food that's that's good for the sight and it's uh pleasant to the sight and good for food. That means it fits a plan, but f- food can't be moral or immoral. So that's not a moral idea. Genesis 2.12, the gold of the land is good, but gold can't be moral or immoral, so good there doesn't have a moral connotation. Genesis 2.17 talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There it does have a moral connotation. And how do you know that? Because it's contrasted with evil. Context tells you that. But Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone, can't have a moral connotation. So that tells me that that that's not a good argument. That's the only good argument I've really ever heard from. Now, another point that we need to make is that when you look at the description of Satan's fall in fourteen and Ezekiel twenty-eight, it doesn't fit the description of the early earth in Genesis one and two. So, if you look at what's described for the earth in Genesis one and two, and then compare that to uh, especially Ezekiel twenty-eight. Uh, it just doesn't uh, fit. So we have to then ask the question, well, when were the angels created? And when did Lucifer fall? 
And then, of course, why is this important? So there are basically three views as to when God created the angels. And I'm just going to put a little timeline up here for you. Uh, those little black squares shows up kind of dark. Each one has a number in it. You can figure out it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then the long one at the end is a week. It starts with the at the very beginning of time, before the first day. Now, why do we say that? Well, because of Job 37. God, I'm getting that clicking again. I don't know if that's, I'm going to move the uh, box. Maybe that helps. Okay, you have the creation of angels because all of the angels, all the sons of God, that's a term for angels, shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. Now, the foundation of the earth has to be the first thing. So God had to, they had to have all existed, but they're in unison. So no satanic fall yet. So this view would see uh, creation of the angels. Uh, this first view I'm putting up here sees the creation of the angels on the first day, beginning of the first day. But then it puts the fall of Lucifer into the second week. This was a view of Dr. Whitcomb, who co-authored uh, the Genesis Flood with Dr. Morris. This is what he stated at the, uh, uh, at the uh, conference we had in Houston just, just recently. So, But initially, all of the angels uh, praised the Lord. Some, uh, Psalm 148, 1 through 5, they all uh, praised him all together, all the angels, all his hosts. Uh, Job 38, I think I said 37 twice earlier by mistake. Uh, 38, 4 through 7. Uh, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The Lord said to Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Then skip down to verse 6. To what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So that indicates that you, you have all the angels in unison created before the foundation of the earth. Now, let's put up another graph here. Another view that's put up is that the angels are created on the fourth day with the stars because they're often compared to stars. Now, this view, I think, is really weak because it, it, it can't really deal with Job 38, 4 through 7. And then they put also put the fall of, uh, of Lucifer somewhere into the uh, into the second week. Now, the view that I hold is a view that God creates the angels before one one. Then you have the event of one one, and then Satan falls at some indeterminate time. There's a time lapse between one one and one two, and then the first day begins with sort of a restoration of the earth, and then you have the seven days of uh, uh, of creation or recreation. Now, let me just. Uh, show you a little bit in Ezekiel 28 uh, 13 talks about the uh, this uh, this uh, original domain of Satan you were in Eden the garden of God but this isn't the same Eden that you see in Genesis chapter 2 uh, every precious stone was your covering the sardius topaz diamond beryl onyx jasper uh, workmanship of your timbrels you know there, there's all of these uh, precious stones that are there uh, it's a, it says that uh, Lucifer is the anointed cherub who covered uh, you're on the holy mountain with God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Uh, you are perfect in all your ways. Um, again, verse 16 ends with uh, the fact God says, I destroyed you, a covering chair from the midst of the fiery stones. 
So this is just doesn't seem to indicate anything about about man being there. And if Lucifer fell after uh, Genesis two four, then then why why isn't man mentioned at all? Uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve when Lucifer states his five I wills, he's he will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's the angels. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation. This is a, a position of authority over the angels. Um, uh, verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Again, this is another term used to refer to the angels. I'll be like the Most High. That, no reference to man. If man had been created, why doesn't he say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule, rule man? So here's how I see it. Initially, God created the, uh, the heavens. No stars. Just a black space-time continuum. Then he created the earth. Then something happened to the original earth when Lucifer fell and it's plunged into darkness and it's covered with the deep so it would be frozen solid. And some people try to say, well, that is what created the fossils. But you've got a problem. If the whole fossil uh the the whole uh, sedimentary le- level on the on the that covers the planet, where you find all of this all of the fossils, has to really be laid down by the same event because it's it's it doesn't fit the same pattern everywhere you 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 go on the planet. There are places where it's upside down, changed, folded, uh, things of that nature, and so you 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 have to have it all at one time or another. This is why most of the people who held to a gap view held to a local flood view in Genesis 6-9. through 9. Not all, but most of them did. Because they recognized that if, if you go, go with a, uh, uh, a universal flood, or, or, that, or if you're trying to put all the fossil, all the uh, uh, geologic column and the fossil record into Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 into a gap there, then... Uh, you got a problem when you come to the world, a, a universal flood, because then you've got this worldwide catastrophe that leaves no evidence in the geologic record. And that just doesn't make sense if you're taking the text literally and you understand the real power that water has. And see, it, it, the, the, the flood didn't last 40 days and 40 nights, did it? It lasted a year from the time they went on the, the, um, ark to the time they got off was a week longer than a year. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the waters continued to rise for another 150 days. Now, that's 190 days. That's uh, that's more than half a year. That is a tremendous amount of uh, turbulence and power from all of the uh, all that water on the earth, and for that, for that to leave no evidence in the geologic uh, column would be uh, something that would just not make very much sense. So all this did was it just indicates that God uh, put the earth in some sort of a deep freeze until uh, he restored it. This was a time of uh, judgment upon the angels. It's described as tohu, uh, tohu vabohu. And then you have uh, the recreation of the earth and the creation of the stars and the sun, uh, the sun and the moon. Initially, you had the Eden, the Garden of God, and then uh, God comes along. Here's a little different way of looking at it. You have the original creation, Genesis 1-1. Then there's darkness, chaos, judgment on Satan and the fallen angels, uh, indicated by Genesis 1-2. But there's no death. 
never does it say that the penalty for the angels is death. Not one time. Death only comes as a result of Adam's sin, not angelic sin. That's just an assumption some people will read because that's what happens later on. So there's no death. Uh, there's no pre-Adamic race. There's no fossils. There's no stratification there at all. That all comes from subsequent events. And then you have your seven days of, of restoration. Now, uh, Psalm 94 talks about the with God a thousand days in thy sight are like yesterday. This is picked up by Peter, Second Peter 3.8. Uh, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. He's not giving a definition of a day as a thousand years. He is simply indicating that God is timeless in a figurative way. Now, a couple of other things I want to point out here. Death is the penalty for sin. But the word death can be a pregnant sense that includes many different things. Primarily, it's spiritual death because what happened in the day that they ate of the fruit, the consequence that we see is that they're separated from God. When God came to walk in the garden, they were afraid, and they went to hide. They had already tried to cover themselves up with, with fig leaves. But spiritual death resulted in other kinds of death. The first time you have physical death mentioned is at the end of chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, we read that... Um, when he, when God uh, now, uh, finishes the curse, the judgment to Adam, he said, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the first mention of physical death. But they're already dead spiritually. So these other kinds of death, physical death, carnal death, uh, disease, suffering, deformity, violence, all of that comes about as a result of Adam's sin. Notice in the, the when God begins to uh, define uh, to the creatures who have rebelled the consequence of sin, he addresses the serpent first and says, Because you have done this, you are cursed or judged more than all the cattle. That's a comparative term. It indicates that the cattle, the beasts of the field, are judged, but the serpent is judged more so. So Adam's sin doesn't just affect man in terms of his relationship with God. That is a very shallow and superficial view of sin, and it doesn't do justice to Scripture. This is why God has to come back and eventually uh, redeem the creation and then have a new creation. And in Romans in Romans chapter 8, uh, when Paul is talking about suffering, he says, for the creation... In uh, Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Why did the creation become uh, uh, futile? Uh, for he, and then Paul goes on to say, For we know that the... Um, uh, he says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. When did it become come under the bondage of corruption? When Adam sinned. It affected natural law. The first law of thermodynamics means that that uh, states that uh, uh, energy and matter cannot be created or destroyed. That didn't go into effect until God finished the first week. The second law of thermodynamics says that all energy goes from a state of order to disorder, goes into a state of entropy. That comes after the fall because of, because of Adam's sin. So Adam's sin changed things. And the, and the curse at the end of the... Uh, 
And when God is addressing the uh, the man, he says, Now thorns and thistles, the, the earth will not bring forth thorns and thistles. See, those same plants would have been there prior, but now something happened to their genetic makeup so that they're going to produce thorns and thistles. God built into the structure, the DNA structure of everything, uh, enough flexibility to handle this chaos that sin would bring. So that Adam's sin changed botany. It changed the animals were all created to eat from the grass of the field, the herbs of the field. They were all herbivores. But after the fall, they became not instantly carnivores. I think, uh, uh, but over time, they they changed. Dinosaurs were still dinosaurs. Lions were still lions. But lions are going to, but lions before the fall ate grass. They're going to eat grass again in the millennial kingdom, right? But because of sin, their dental structure would have changed some. Their uh, gastrointestinal system would have changed some. So that 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 what we see from Adam's sin is that it affects all kinds of things, and what that means is that even in the animal kingdom, you're not going to have death, disease, and deformity prior to Adam's sin. So you can't. What do you have in in the fossil record? What do you have with? Uh, uh, yeah, you have death, disease, and deformity all through the fossil record. So that can't have come prior to uh, Adam's sin. Okay, let me just uh, skip ahead a couple of sl- slides here. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty one and twenty two. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. It's talking about physical death here. Uh, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But even though this is applied to man, what else happens in the millennial kingdom? You ha- this is when that's what Romans eight is talking about is the, that the uh, sons of man are now waiting and the earth is waiting for the appearance manifestation of Christ who is going to bring redemption to the earth. See Romans eight twenty three. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. And in, and uh, so there's going to be a redemption of the uh, of the physical planet. Now, just uh, one little wrap up here, just a little uh, chart. The 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 judgment is reversed. The tohu, the chaos, is reversed in day one, day two, and day three. You have the uh, uh, restructuring of the original uh, environments. Uh, the light and darkness in the heavens, the atmosphere, the seas, the continents, and then they're filled with uh, the stars and the sun and moon, day four, the creatures of the air, creatures of the water on day five, and then the land creatures and man on day six. Now, just to wrap up, I just want to wrap this up. Some of you going to sleep a little bit, move your butt around a little bit, get a little energy going. I just want to hit a couple of things. If the fossils weren't formed then, when were they formed? At the flood. So I just want to point out a couple of things about the flood fossils and the age of the earth. Uh, Here we have a a great picture here, a little cartoon. Uh, You have a father and son talking. They're looking at a rainbow. And the um, father says, look at that beautiful rainbow. It's a promise from God 
that he will never again uh, flood the entire earth as he did in Noah's day. And then his son says, well, my Christian college professor said that Noah's flood didn't cover the entire earth. Uh, So in the second panel, the father says, he told you it was just a local flood? Yeah, that's what he said. Then in the last picture, you see that they're actually sitting on a rooftop in Nashville as the uh, water has uh, flooded the city. And uh, they're just sitting up there and looking at the rainbow and say, so this guy believes that God promised to never again send a local flood. Okay? Just doesn't work. You can't get a local flood, but that's inevitably what you get. Uh, I love Norm Geisler. Geisler is a great, great apologist, great defender of the Scripture, great theologian, but he believes in a local flood, and he believes in an old earth. And those things, unfortunately, go together. Now, when you look at the ark, this thing was enormous. Uh, it held a capacity of about 400, about 522 standard boxcars. You could get about 125,000 sheep-sized animals in there, which is the average size of most dinosaurs even. And it was the probably the largest ship ever built until 1858. It was enormous. Now, those numbers, that, those figures come out of uh, Whitcomb and Morris's book, The Genesis Flood. But uh, a member, a staff member at ICR named John Woodmorampi has written quite a technical analysis called the Ark of Feasibility Study. And he argues that the kind was really a br- broader than species and that there would only need 18,000, approximately 18,000 animals on the Ark. And so the animals would only take up a third of the Ark. And another third of the ark, you could put food in there, and uh, so that there was plenty of room for many more people if they had responded to the gospel. But they didn't. Now here's a um, little picture comparison. I like the top one. That's an old picture. It just wasn't made dense enough to really come across. But you see a school bus down the uh, lower right-hand corner comparing the size of a school bus to the size of, the, of Noah's ark. And you see just how enormous... Uh, the ark would be. So in this chart, these are the earth features that are best described and explained by a cataclysmic flood. Grand Canyon, other canyons, the uh, mid-oceanic ridge, continental shelves and slopes, ocean trenches, uh, earthquakes, magnetic variations, submarine canyons, coal and oil formations, the ice ages that come after the flood, frozen mammoths, volcanoes and lava, all of these different things are best explained by a cataclysm like the flood. Now, we found some uh, 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 all kinds of fossils in the strata. You found clams, like the fossil here, all through uh, the, uh, the, the fossil record. Guess what? Even in the oldest strata, there's still clams. They look just like the clams we have today. There's no change, no indication uh, of evolutionary uh, change whatsoever. But it does indicate that in order to form the fossil, it had to be a rapid event, something that indicates a catastrophe. Because you don't see, look at this top fossil, you have a fish eating another fish. This had to happen almost instantly that they were just trapped in the, in the sedimentary uh, layers. Uh, insects, But, you know, there's some real interesting anomalies in, that you don't hear about and I don't hear about in the fossil record. And one of them, this is this one. This was uh, embedded in, a, uh, in, 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 in the strata along with other fossils. Uh, it looks to me like this is an instrument that's made by man. It looks like some kind of a hammer or pick of some type. Uh, and it's a, it's a, stone, a stone axe. 
Uh, here's something else that was found. It's an iron uh, uh, bowl of some kind with a spout on either side of it. This was found embedded in a coal. Somebody broke open a large piece of coal, and this was inside of it. Um, you have uh, different uh, uh, sea creatures like this, and this is what I think is one of the most interesting ones. This is a, a brass. Nobody they, they've, they've done a metallurgical uh, evaluation of this. It has an odd zinc uh, element to it that is unlike anything known today. It is uh, very well formed. It seems to be similar to some of the uh, 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 craftsmanship that we found in ancient Babylon. But this was found in the 1940s that a, a, a young boy, teenager, was uh, putting coal into a stove, and he had this big chunk of coal he needed to put in the stove, and it was too big, so he broke it. And when he broke it, this came out of the coal. Uh, this came out of a strata of coal that was supposed to be uh, 40 or 50,000 uh, or a million years old. And yet, here you have something that was supposed to have uh, out of coal that was uh, supposedly formed uh, millions of years before man came along. So what 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 explains that? Now, this is an unproven anecdote, but uh, <clears throat> my friend uh, Charlie Clough, who has uh, been involved in the um, uh, creationist movement for, for many years, wrote his master's thesis at Dallas Seminary on the reaction that evangelicals had to... Uh, uh, to the uh, Genesis flood when it first came out in 61. I uh, got to know uh, Dr. Morris very well. And back in the late 60s, Dr. Morris was a professor at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and he attended a church in uh, in kind of northwest Virginia, not too far from West Virginia. And they were looking for a pastor, so that was a place that they, Charlie went to to uh, candidate after he got out of Dallas Seminary around 1967. And some of the men there in that church had worked in the coal mines, and their story was, like the incident of some of these fossils we found, is that, that every now and then they would find human remains fossilized in a coal strata. So we're told coal was formed millions of years ago, long before man came along. And they would find human remains. They would find artifacts like uh, what we've seen here. And as soon as they would find something like that, everybody had to leave. They would rope the area off. Uh, scientists and archaeologists from the Smithsonian would come in and remove everything, and then they could go back to work, and nobody ever knew what happened. It sort of disappeared like the uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and because it doesn't fit any of the theories, so they just uh, you know they just make it disappear. And then we have the question of dinosaurs: Did God bring these dinosaurs onto the Ark? Sure. Uh, he, he did, and dinosaurs could actually live with men. Now, this is a map of Mexico down near uh, Guadalajara, and in this area of Mexico, there have been uh, various uh, artifacts found that indicate that men saw dinosaurs. And one of these is a 500-year-old um, uh, uh, piece of pottery that was acquired by uh, uh, Dr. Patton, um, who's written many books on creationism, and it indicates, and it has depicted on this piece of uh, rock, picture of two dinosaurs. It looks like the one on the right is uh, some kind of Tyrannosaurus, and they are fighting one another. Now, where did these these um, Indians down in Mexico get that idea 500 years ago? How did they know about dinosaurs? Also, they would fi find these kinds of uh, pottery uh, down in that area that had been uh, made by the Indians. Where did they get the idea of these these things? This was. These, this stuff's 500 years old. 
long time before people came along and started talking about dinosaurs. That that's really a modern modern thing. Once coming into the 19th century, so these are very uh, very old uh, pieces of pottery indicating uh, that people saw these kinds of things. Notice that uh, top one there has a man fighting a dinosaur. Pretty interesting. Okay. I think it's time for me to wrap up. Anybody have any questions on this? What I pointed out tonight is that I think there is really good evidence you have in Genesis 1 to have a gap, a time gap between 1-1 and 1-2. That all the other options for where Satan fell don't really work very well when you compare all the scriptural evidence. When you look at the grammar of the text, when you look at the structure of the text, it seems that you can make a very strong case, despite what some a lot of people say today, that there is a time lapse there. But there's nothing to indicate that this has to be very long. The only reason that people today think it was long was because they borrowed the conclusions from modern science as if that was correct. As I pointed out the last couple of nights, those assumptions can be uh, can be challenged. Yeah. Hmm. No, no. Right. Yeah, it could be, but see, if you just read the text, you know, there's nothing to indicate. Nobody ever thought of anything more than than a short time until you had modern science. And the only reason they put it there was to put the fossil record, was to, to accommodate Science, but what I've shown from looking at the flood is you can't put any of that there without destroying your interpretation of Genesis six through nine. So once you realize Genesis six through nine has to be the basis for sedimentation, the fossil record, uh, all of these kinds of things, then there's no reason to have any any lengthy time period at all between Genesis one one and one two. Anything else? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Rod. I hope y'all enjoyed that. The Bible tells us that the laborer is worthy of his hire. I'm not sure how much he labored, but he's worthy of his hire. <laughs>
pray that you would continue to bless him and West Houston Bible Church. I thank you for the privilege that we have of uh, sharing uh, financially with him, uh, recognizing that he is worthy uh, of his labor. These things I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.